Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be found always acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Dear people of God, the recent ad campaign for the Episcopal Church, a billboard was posted with the background images of violence, crime, war, corruption. But in the foreground was a representation of Moses' hands holding up stone, two stone copies of the Ten Commandments. The caption beneath read, for quick relief, take two tablets. On an atheist advocacy website, this same image was posted with a story. And the headline read, 10 more reasons to feel guilty. Now these are dramatically different perspectives on the Ten Commandments. One, seeing the law of God as the universal prescription for human ills. The other, taking the law as another religious, legalistic intrusion on society. And it seems that even Christians are in two minds about this. Many of us are all too ready to impose the law of God on our neighbor, even while we might be less than inclined to take them seriously for ourselves. When the psalmist sings, Oh, how I love your law, O Lord, I find in them liberty and joy. We just scratch our heads in wonder. What's that all about? The law of God is important, we think, to keep our neighbors at bay, to keep pagans in line, to protect us and our personal rights. And yet, while we would prefer that our neighbor live under the law, on a personal level, we tend to not see these as really directed at us. We're under grace, we tell ourselves, not law. And so we merrily go on our way, coveting and bearing false witness and breaking Sabbath, because we get a special dispensation as Christians. Even Believers tend to see the law of God as a great burden, as a buzzkill, as ten more reasons to feel guilty. This morning, I'd like to spend a few moments thinking about the value, the merit of prescribing God's commands on our neighbors who are unbelievers. When we as the church tend to take little note of them, for ourselves. The last few years, many of us have followed the personal crusade of Judge Roy Moore of Alabama. He fought and lost a battle to keep the Ten Commandments monument on public display at the Alabama Supreme Court. And since losing that battle, Moore has been driving this monument around the country on the back of his flatbed truck from one public appearance to another. The very sight of it is awe-inspiring for Christians. The Atlantic Monthly says that this stone memorial weighs 
5,280 pounds, which, if you think about it, is just over 500 pounds per commandment. When Judge Moore returns home to Alabama, it takes a 57-foot yellow I-beam crane to remove this monument from the truck. And even this five-ton crane buckles under the weight. I think this offers a graphic illustration of just how the Ten Commandments are viewed in our culture. Not just by secular culture, but by religious culture. The law of God is a tremendous burden, a heavy obligation placed around our necks, impinging on our freedom and our creativity and our fun. But they've also become a symbol of the culture wars that goes on between secular and religious America. Professor Thomas Long of Duke comments, most people cannot name all the Ten Commandments, but they're persuaded that at the center of each one is a finger-wagging thou shalt not. For others, the commandments are heavy yokes to be publicly placed on the necks of a rebellious society. For such an understanding of the Decalogue, a two-and-a-half-ton rock sitting on the bed of a truck is a perfect symbol. We've forgotten that the Babylonians' gods were heavy idols that had to be trucked around. Isaiah 46, the prophet pokes fun at the image. Their idols are carried by beasts of burden. Their images are loaded on weary animals, so burdensome, but unable to lift the burden and save. The implication here is that unlike the religion of the pagan deities, the worship of the one true God is anything but a gross burden. Notice the words of the psalm today. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. More precious than gold, sweeter than honey. Now honestly, can you imagine anyone saying that today? I mean, I've asked this before for parents, but what would you think if you came home and found your child singing, Oh, how I love your rules. The regulations of my parents bring joy to my heart. They're sweeter than ice cream, more precious than my Xbox. You'd call your doctor at once. It doesn't seem natural for people to like regulations. They cramp our sense of independence. I remember reading a children's book some years ago in which a father comes home from work to find his young daughter sitting on the front porch, brooding and silent. When the father went in and asked the mother what was wrong, the mother replied, well, today she learned that there's a law of gravity and she's mad about it. It's difficult as modern people to see the law of God as anything but an intrusion, an inconvenience. Why must God insist on nosing into every corner of our lives? Why give us this litany of commands that covers everything from the bedroom to the boardroom, from our vocation to our vacation? 
The fact that we can ask such questions suggests that we have seriously misunderstood the character of the Ten Commandments. For starters, the word commandment is so weighty. But it gives us, it sets us on a different direction than the Bible really intends. The Hebrew Bible simply refers to these as the ten words from God. And the content of these words is a covenant-making God establishing relationship with his people. God doesn't simply drop these two tablets from the sky and then insist that everyone live up to this high standard. This is a covenant with a specific people, a treaty established by God with a certain community. These are words given to the people of the covenant, and they don't make sense outside of the covenant. Now, Israel knew what these kind of, what these kind of covenants looked like. In the ancient Near East, it was customary for a conquering ruler to establish this kind of contract with a conquered people. It was laying out the terms, the boundaries of the relationship between the vanquisher and the vanquished. In most cases, such a covenant was a trade-off from one tyrannical ruler to another, essentially saying, your old monarch has been overthrown. Now I am your ruler. I have conquered you. And now your loyalty belongs to me. And as a sign of permanence, often these covenants would be carved in stone with two copies created so that both parties can share them with their lawyers to help them hold firm to their end of the contract. And this is something of what's described in, in Exodus 20, but with a difference. God has acted on behalf of the nation of Israel, not as conqueror, but as redeemer. Rather than violent subjugation, God has come as their rescuer. He's graciously intervened and has redeemed these people from slavery in Egypt. This isn't a bargain. God doesn't say, if you keep these laws, then you will be saved. This is a matter of grace. Listen to the words, I, Yahweh your God, have rescued you out of the land of slavery. I have redeemed you from slavery is the prologue of this, these commandments. And therefore, rather than being a contract for a new kind of slavery, rather than be a, a bargain for obedience, for salvation, these people are already redeemed. And so the Ten Commandments are their charter of freedom. There seems to be another symbolic difference when the two copies of the covenant are distributed one for the king and one for the people, so that both sides can be accountable for the terms. But many Old Testament scholars suggest that the two tablets are not two because you can only fit one, five commandments on one and five on the other, but that they're identical copies of the same covenant. And Yahweh does something unprecedented as a show of his own trustworthiness. He gives both copies to the covenant people. You see, God the Redeemer is unlike any other sovereign. 
He chooses to rescue rather than overthrow. And he doesn't require a contract, a copy of the contract to ensure that his rights will be guaranteed. This is a relationship of trust established with the living and true God whose promised character is to keep his word. So what is the content of this covenant? The Bible refers to these words as words of life. And it has to be understood in terms of the larger story. See, God has created the world by spoken word. He speaks and the creation leaps at his command. So we live in a world, in a word-based reality. But God has power to give life and purpose with his word. In creation, his will is spoken and, and things become alive. And now, after generations of human rebellion against the word of God, trying to make their own world on their own terms, the creator steps back in and speaks. He gives us a word that gives life. And this time, by creating a covenant with Israel, he has made a chosen people to stand as a signpost in the world. Look, this is what it looks like to live under God's rule again. This is a summary of what it looks like to be God's people as an enticement to our neighbors. People write volumes filled with advice about what it's needed to set our world right. If you and I were asked what is needed to set society right again, most of us could talk for days. Mark Twain once quipped, the sheer wonder of the Ten Commandments in the hands of the church is that there's still only ten of them. These ten words from God were given a clear, succinct vision of what it looks like to be under God's rule. The intent of the commandment was that Israel would be a living example of this covenant not as the moral police of their pagan neighbors, but as a shining model of true humanity under the law of God. And so the call of God's chosen people is not to smack people over the head with these stone tablets in order to create proper behavior, but to live as an alluring enticement to God's covenant. The framework of the Ten Commandments is always grace. God begins the covenant again, I am Yahweh, the God of the covenant. I am your rescuer. I am the one who liberates you from slavery. Now, let me describe for you what liberation looks like. One, no other gods. Because I am your redeemer, you're set free from the tyranny of needing other gods. No longer must you live schizophrenic lives, trying to please multiple masters. Instead, let me give proper order to your life. 
I am the only center you need. Two, no false images. Because I'm your redeemer, you're set free from the pressure of trying to guess who I am or invent gods for yourselves. Don't make me up. Let me graciously reveal myself to you. Three, no misuse of my name. Because I'm your redeemer, you're set free from the arbitrariness of having to stage manage the universe for your own benefit or of invoking my name for your own purposes. Instead, trust that I have your best interest in mind always. This relationship is not about magic or manipulation. It is about grace. Four, remember the Sabbath, keeping it holy. Because I'm your Redeemer, you are set free to rest and laugh and enjoy my world because all the pressure is not on you to make things come out right. Because I'm at work, you can share my work without thinking that you are indispensable. Because I can rest, you can rest. Five, honor your father and your mother. Because I am your redeemer, you do not need to reinvent yourself according to your own design. You are not self-made. You have a history, a heritage that is my gift to you. Accept it, respect it, find the grace in it, and build on it in an honorable way. Six, because I'm your redeemer, you're set free from the cycle of human hatred and violence. You don't need to take justice into your own hands. You don't need to carry the overwhelming burden of anger. Life belongs to me. Justice belongs to me. I will set things right myself in my own way. Seven. Do not commit adultery. Because I'm your redeemer, you're set free to enjoy sex as my good gift to you, rather than as a bargaining chip or a means to the fulfillment of your own self-worth. And you're liberated from the horror of treating human bodies as merchandise and in relationships as disposable. Keep covenant as I have kept covenant with you. Eight, do not steal. Because I'm your redeemer, you're set free from anxiety about possessions. The world belongs to me. All I ask is that you take care of it and share it with others. I will provide. Nine, do not give false testimony about your neighbor. Because I'm your redeemer, you're set free to tell the truth about others without fear that you won't get what's coming to you. 
All good things come from me, not from the worlds you create by your own manipulation of words, deceptive schemes, or destructive speech. 10. Do not covet what belongs to your neighbor. Because I'm your redeemer, you're set free from the oppression of your cravings and false desires. Your happiness is not found in things entrusted to others, but in a living relationship with your creator and redeemer. I am the real gift. I am all you need. At the end of this covenant, Exodus 20 describes the reflexive, fearful response of the people as they hear the thunder and see the fire and smoke on the mountain. And Moses responds to them, Do not be afraid. God is testing you so that the fear of God will remain with you and keep you from sin. Israel cowers before the unknown. Ancient people seem to always live in fear. Fear of the uncontrollable universe, fear of invasion by other countries, fear of the failure of crops and poverty and starvation, fear of natural disaster, yes, fear of the arbitrary gods who might smite them if they screw up. Not really different from the fears we have today. These are the fears of not having control of our own destinies. But Moses speaks about a fear, a fear of God that drives out all fear. By offering this covenant, God is asking the people of Israel to transfer, transfer their fear of not being in control to an acceptance of not being in control, but being under the benevolent care of God. When we continue to live with the delusion that we are in charge, perpetuated by our automobiles, our air conditioning, our bank accounts, just to name a few, we render ourselves incapable of proper fear, incapable of fitting reverence for the God who casts out all fear. The Ten Commandments, rather than be a stockade in which we're imprisoned, is offered to us as the arena of real freedom, of real joy as the redeemed creatures of God, a place where fear has no place. If we try to use these stone tablets to bludgeon our rebellious society into grudging submission, then we've lost a sense of what these commands are for. We've lost the sheer wonder of these life-giving, liberating words given to a covenant people. Rather than present these to our neighbors as a list of mind-numbing rules, what if we were set apart to live according to these rules, these principles, so that people will see the joy and wonder and wisdom of living as humans were intended to live? Robert Wuth now tells a story of Jack Casey, a, a volunteer fireman who remembers a childhood experience of, fr of frightening oral surgery 
He was terrified and confused. But a gentle nurse stood next to him, holding his hand, repeating, don't worry, I'll be right beside you, no matter what happens. And when he woke up from the anesthesia, there she was, still holding his hand, still keeping her word. Years later, when Jack was called to the scene of a terrible accident, where a man was pinned in an upside-down truck. Gasoline was dripping out of the truck, and the power tools being used to free him were creating sparks. Jack remembers the inspiring faithfulness of the nurse during his childhood, and without hesitation, he crawls inside the mangled mess to grab the hand of the terrified man. Don't worry, he said. I'm right here with you. I'm not going anywhere. Later, after the rescue was accomplished, Jack's colleagues chided him. Jack, you're an idiot. You could have been killed. But all Jack would say was, I just couldn't leave him. This is how the law of God works. God approaches us in grace. He rescues us from slavery. And he shows us in relationship what grace and fidelity looks like. And he keeps his promise to never leave us or forsake us. And it's from this experience that we begin to see the rhythms of God in the world. We begin to live in the world as God's covenant people, free to take risks on behalf of others, because we have seen what faithfulness looks like. Tom Long concludes, the Decalogue begins with the good news of what a liberating God has done, and then describes the shape of the freedom that results. If we want to symbolize the presence of the Ten Commandments among us, we would do well to hold a dance. The good news of God who sets people free is music. The commandments are the dance steps of those who hear it playing. The best way to entice people into God's kingdom would be if the people of God chose to fearlessly live according to God's law. The best testimony to our love for God would not be a public monument, but a public celebration. Rather than long, acrimonious court cases, rather than angry exchanges with an increasingly secular culture, we ought to live as people who sing with the psalmist. Oh, how I love your law. It brings joy to the heart. We ought to be people learning how to dance. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.